A wonderful opportunity to invite your friends and neighbors, family members and strangers. I hope to see you then. Also today is a invitation to membership Sunday. If you are ready to join this congregation and make a financial pledge to its work in the world, then I invite you to meet with me directly after this service in the church study. You'll find it just behind the sanctuary and look for the double doors. We continue our series on expectation. When it comes to love and death, what do you expect? Let's begin. Do you want to stop traffic this morning? Would you like to kill a long-winded conversation before it begins at coffee hour? Do you prefer to dine alone after worship? Will the Christmas party you are hosting end early? The one way to ensure that you are not the life of the party is to fixate on death. Speak sincerely about death and watch the crowds dissipate. Even those who seek to assure us that death is no enemy and that life after death is possible are unlikely to be of comfort. Plato's idea that in heaven we'll be able to see clearly what we can only see dimly now, he called the jewels of the soul, was later borrowed by one writer who wrote, now we see through a glass darkly, then face to face. Some insist that death is the gateway to a direct and eternal experience with a God, a holy homecoming of sorts. Surely unto Allah all things come home, explains the Quran. The poet and prophet Walt Whitman trusts the holy in the end when he writes, our rendezvous is fitly appointed. God will be there and wait until we come. The song of my children's ancestors signaled the final liberation from captivity. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. In walks the Buddha, as detached and sufferable as ever, who claims that we are all looking in the wrong direction for the life after death. Instead of upward, he says, look inward. Be ye lamps unto yourselves, he pleads to us. Hold to the truth within yourselves as the only lamp. In this case, there is no place to go. There is only one place to be, and that is within. Yet introspection is no less frightening than the divine encounter, for both require us to face who we really are. It's easier to look the other way. Socrates claims that we are avoiding the wrong deity at the end of our life on earth. Rather than avoid death, we should flee evil, which according to the philosopher runs faster than death. He says, those who believe death be a calamity are an error. 
Yet evil, like death, hounds us from the day we were born. It's nose to the trail from our very first steps. If death is the given in life, evil has the right of first refusal. Sir Thomas More also believed in happy endings. As he was being publicly put to death by hanging, he whispered into the ears of his executioner, quiet yourself and do not be discomforted, for I trust that we shall, once in the heavens, see each other fully, merrily, where we shall be sure to love and live together in joyful bliss eternally. While the way Moore confronts his killer is, is truly noble, isn't it also a bit naive? I pride myself in being a realist on matters of life and death. I cannot embrace death with either the class or the certainty of those whose views I shared. Instead, I resonate with the three friends who, after having died in a car crash, find themselves in heaven at the orientation for new arrivals. <laughs> they are all asked, when you are in your casket and friends and family are mourning for you, what would you like them to say about you? The first decedent says, I'd like to hear them say that I was a groundbreaking doctor and a great family person. The second friend replies, I would like to hear I was an inspiring teacher and parent who made a huge difference in the children of tomorrow. The last friend answers, I would like to hear him say, look, he moved. <laughs> That's what I want to hear when I am dragged kicking and screaming, when life draws death in its glorious train, as the late Manhattan-based minister Forrest Church so eloquently put it. At times, I still cling to the notion that I can cheat death just a little and be death's exception to the rule. More often, I believe I can bend the rules by eating right, drinking less, and healing my inner child. Forrest Church tells this story. He says, I have a friend who has given up alcohol, cigarettes, coffee, eggs, meat, milk, and the sun. <laughs> he eats oat bran for breakfast takes mega doses of vitamin C and E, rides his exercycle religiously, and never uses his microwave oven. He goes on, he may not live longer than his least prudent neighbor, but as his doctor told him, it will certainly seem longer. <laughs> the sad truth is, admits church, we all die of something. Now this may be why Woody Allen speaks to me about death with greater finality than Plato and Socrates, Muhammad and Buddha, Walt Whitman or Sir Thomas More. For Allen explains, I am not afraid of death. 
I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> but if I do end up attending my own funeral, a likelihood after all, I'd still like to hear them say, look, he moved. Perhaps heaven is simply this state of denial, at least for some of us. The writers of old asked the question, death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? This seems to make death the enemy, and a conquerable one at that. Then the Jewish tradition offers up not one, but two prophets, Elijah and Enoch, who never experienced physical death, but were taken directly up into the heavens while they were still alive. These stories calm the fears of a young Baptist boy who also had hell to contend with at one end of the rainbow. As an adult, these myths sometimes haunt me with false hope and prod me to consider the consequences of unorthodox living, even today. Then I hear Forest Church say, when we die, however we may have lived, the ultimate culprit is not sin and squalor. The culprit is life. This changes everything. Now, Forest Church is perhaps my most significant authority on love and death. These twin themes are woven into almost all of church's writings, books and sermons, study guides and essays. Church freely admits to being a lifelong student of death. It starts with his definition of religion, and I really like this definition. Religion is our human response to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. Religion is the human response to the dual reality of being alive and having to die. Knowing almost from birth that we must die, we question what life means, says church. The minister should know. In 2008, church was diagnosed with terminal esophageal cancer and given only months to live. He was 59 years old at the time and had been senior minister at All Souls Church in New York City for 30 years. The crux of church's message to those of us with time on our hands is this. He says, death is not life's goal, only its terminus. The goal is to live in such a way that our lives will prove worth dying for. This is where love comes into the picture. The one thing that can't be taken away from us, even by death, is the love we give away before we go. This, I believe, is the point of life and the power of religion, to give ourselves away in love. Life provides opportunities to love, and religion offers ways to love, truly and deeply. While the whole of humanity seems bent on worshiping desire rather than love, Religion insists 
that love never fails. Being ready to die means having no unfinished business in matters of love. It means forgiving the imperfect love of parents, even as we love our own children imperfectly. It requires saying, I love you, early and often, not banking on the privilege of deathbed goodbyes. It insists that we risk being hurt and feel the pain of rejection when our love is thwarted. It discerns when to hold on and when to let go. On a visit to my mother's home in Ohio, I was confronted once again by my father's death 13 years ago on Christmas Eve. Now in 2006, uh, Christmas Eve was on a Sunday, which meant that I was to preach twice in the morning and then again at night. The call came unexpectedly at 8.30 a.m. on my way to church. My dad was dead, the family was home or en route, and that was it. I drove through streams of tears, wondering if I had any unfinished business with my dad. We were close, but so different. My religious path had, had winded it into heretical territory. Yet I was a minister, just like my dad. My spouse was male, yet I was committed to one person, just like my dad. We often debated from dusk to dawn with all the passions of our convictions. In any of these arenas, had I gone too far? I stumbled through three services that fateful Christmas Eve, then flew to Ohio with my whole family, thanks to the good gifts of our San Francisco congregation. Before boarding the plane, I received a call and my concerns about unfinished business were laid to rest. My dad had requested, no, he insisted that I speak my truth at his funeral. This made all the difference to me. And I was once again humbled and comforted by my father's love, even after his death. While my more orthodox relatives were aghast, <laughs> with plenty of preachers among them, those who truly knew my father were not surprised in the least. Like church, my father knew that the one thing that cannot be taken away from us, even by death, is the love we give away before we go. My visit with mom that Christmas was peppered with reminders of the love my father spent in life, often going over budget, but always paid in full. If we want, as Forest Church asserts, to live in such a way that our life is worth dying for, if we seek to spend more of our love before our lives are spent, how is this possible? Church offers us his mantra, 
one that I wholly subscribe to, and maybe you've heard it before. He says, want what you have. Do what you can. Be who you are. Want what you have. Not what you think you should have, but what you already have. John Lennon observed that life is what happens to us when we are busy making other plans. Other plans. Our quest for the holy grail of American culture can cut us off from the gratitude we could have from all we've already been given. Instead, we are conditioned to chase after the one thing that will make us whole at the expense of losing all that is holy. The trouble is, there's always just one more thing, one more purchase, one more lover, one more degree, just one more something so we can have everything. Nothing quenches the spirit of gratitude like the demon of desire. Gratitude is the assurance that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. Thankfulness is often expressed as loving kindness as we choose to bless others as we have been blessed. Desire, however, keeps us from acknowledging the good in our lives by making us feel that we're just not good enough. Its insistence on perfection ensures we'll never be ready to give our lives or our love away. I think of the 17th century theologian Jeremy Taylor, who after losing all his earthly possessions, found a way to want what he had, even in a basement. I am fallen, he says, I am fallen into the hands of publicans and sequestrators, and they have taken all from me. What now? Let me look about me. They have left me the sun and the moon, fire and water, a loving wife, and many friends to pity me and some to relieve me. To live a life that is worth dying for, want what you have. Then church says, do what you can. While this may be logical, it is not always easy. He asks us to consider how much time we waste doing what we can't. Now, I'm in favor of dreaming big, reaching for the stars, testing the waters, and leaping with faith. But our pipe dreams, by necessity, may cause us to fail. And we may soon try, we may soon quit trying altogether. Instead, we coast through life, often riding on the dreams of others. The alternative, says Church, is to put all our talents and resources into the significant goals that do lie within our power. Imagine holding on to the possible and letting go of the impossible before we die. My experience tells me that the possible is challenging enough and that hard work rather than raw hope bring my goals within reach. Letting go of some dreams means holding on to others and then making them come true.
to live a life that is worth dying for. Do what you can. The final phrase of church's mantra is be who you are. He writes, to envy another's skills, looks, or gifts, rather than embracing your own nature and call, is to fail in two respects. In trying unsuccessfully to be who you aren't, we fail to become who we are. You know, if I had only listened to others, I most likely would have become a musician. That's what they told me, and I believed them for a time, long enough to acquire two degrees in music. But that still small voice within wouldn't leave me alone. It questioned my motives and teased out the true desires of my heart. It held up a mirror that saw a minister's reflection. It exposed me to myself, perhaps for the very first time. To be who we are risks knowing ourselves so intimately that we may need to change. But go deeper, become a better you rather than a carbon copy of someone else. Only then can you discover the calling in life that only you can fulfill. I don't want to miss out on the ways you will bless the world. Cases of mistaken identity don't exist with the divine. Do you really want to stop traffic this morning? Start giving away the one thing that can't be taken away from us, even by death. Share your gift of love with everyone you encounter. When they set you off, love them anyway. When they let you down, lift them up. When they revile you and persecute you, open your arms. That's living a life that is worth dying for, to the glory of life.